You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly arts show. My name is Diana Moxon. Now, before we start, a special birthday shout-out to Lennox, who celebrates her first birthday today. And thanks to her grandmother, the erstwhile KOPN programmer, Anne Mayer, she probably is one of my most loyal listeners. And I would say she probably has been to more arts events in her first 12 months than most of Columbia. So happy birthday, Lennox. And um, on with the show. So this week on the show, we're going to be a little more behind the scenes than in the footlights. Later in the show, we peek into the world of theatrical costume design with University of Missouri Assistant Professor of Costume Design, Mark Vital, whose fabulous costumes were recently seen in the theatre department's production of Alice. But we're going to start today with a look at another vital player, or pair of players in this case, of every theatre the world over, that of the producer. Rashara Knight and Adam Bretsky took over the management of Talking Horse Productions from its founder, Ed Hansen, last year. But because of the long planning horizons everyone is working on, their first season as co-producers doesn't start until 2020. Last Saturday, they announced their upcoming season during the intermission of the Girl Rilla Theatre evening at Talking Horse Theatre. And I think it's fair to say it was met with a lot of excitement. So I am delighted to welcome her back to the show, Talking Horse Artistic Director, Adam Bretsky, and Executive Director, Rashara Knight, to talk about the philosophy behind their 2020 season and the productions they have on the calendar. Welcome back, Adam and Rashara. Thanks so much. Now, it feels like you've been there, like I said, for so long, but we're still watching Ed Hansen's final season of show. So it's like turning a giant shipping container around. Why does it take so long? Well, a lot of it has to do with, first of all, acquiring the rights to the different productions that we have. And then a lot of it also has to do with being a nonprofit theater. We have to do grant requests. And so we have to have that plan far out in advance so we can write the grant uh, for the Office of Cultural Affairs. And Missouri Arts Council. It, it always seems slightly odd that we were you know, setting our program by funding timing <laughs> rather than when it made sense to us as directors or audience members. Yeah, it's a, it's a little earlier, I think, than personally we would like to announce. But then again, we've also been planning for, I mean, months on end now. So it, it makes sense to announce when we've got the season ready. We have multiple people multiple times a day asking us, hey, when are you going to announce the season? I want to get excited. And for us, it works well because we can now take the time to interview directors and talk to people about their perspective ideas for what we have to come. Right. Now, before we get to the details of the 2020 season, let's look at the philosophy behind it. Rashara, what were your guiding principles in creating this lineup of shows? (laughs) I don't know if we necessarily had a guiding principle. I think when, when Adam and I took over that was literally our first decision it was it was something that we didn't think long about I think within our first couple of weeks we had made that decision amongst ourselves that this was what we were going to do and that decision is what that we were going to produce a season of shows of all women playwrights and featuring mostly female actors too yes yes the way the lineup is right now we have three to two women to men as far as actors 
that will be in our next season. Yeah, uh, a lot of it was actually spurred on by our friend and our board member, Meg Phillips Crespi, who you mentioned earlier was doing the Gorilla Theater Project. And she had done a lot of research um, in preparing for her grant for this project that showed that on Broadway, as of June of 2018, roles for female to males was at a ratio of one to three. So there was three male parts for every one female part. And in some cases, it was as bad as there being nine male roles in a show and zero female roles in a show. And if you look around our community at who's doing theater, at who's actively participating, I think all your listeners probably know there is a majority of female players compared to their male counterparts. Absolutely. And even in terms of audience numbers, in, certainly nationally, I think it's something like 68 or 65% mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. audiences are female. Absolutely. Um, so it makes absolutely no sense that they're not being represented. Right. And then it isn't only who is on the stage, but who is writing the plays, the librettists for the musicals. So how difficult was it finding, for the musicals particularly, musicals that were not only written by a woman, but also scored by a woman with female roles in it? Is, there, is that a short... A small number of play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Yes. Um, when we when we got started, we came up with a concept for the idea of, okay, we're going to do this all-female season, especially the musicals. Lyrics have to be written by a woman. The, the book has to be written by a woman. It has to be composed by a woman. So I put a call out on my Facebook page for all my theater friends that are out there. And I we know a lot of great people that are very involved with theater that have this, I mean, encyclopedic knowledge of all the different shows that there have been and the list was that we got just off the top of our heads was four four shows and so we really had to dig in deep to find some um we got a lot of the same answer we got a lot of very out there choices you know one that kept coming to the forefront was a show called quilters and i said oh all right that does fit the criteria but (laughs) Boy, this isn't a great show. <laughs> so we really had to dig deep for those, but I think what we have found is pretty spectacular. Well, we'll go through those, but give us some statistics on Broadway and what, sure. what the numbers are. So on Broadway for female playwrights, it was a ratio of five to one. And I want to actually add a little asterisk by this because in June of 2018, one of the most popular plays on Broadway was Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which of course J.K. Rowling is uh, given a writer's credit for. And I wonder if not for the prestige that she had already generated, if that would have been one that was on Broadway. Right. So it's almost uh, not to create a caveat for her, but you do start to wonder if women are are getting their fair shake and being able to produce plays and being able to get their shows up on Broadway. Now, a lot of it is because there are a number of classics that are on Broadway. And of course, if you go back 50 years, there are even fewer female playwrights that were getting their works done, not because they didn't exist, but because those works weren't being featured. And I was looking at some stats also for people behind the scenes. So they said that of, this is for, uh, on Broadway, the database, it says 233 principal roles, only 37% were female. Mm -hmm. Productions, Mm only 19% of directors on Broadway were female. 18% Mm -hmm. of choreographers, Mm -hmm. 16% of writers. And then uh, if you go further back, makeup, makeup dominates, 67% of makeup artists are female. Mm -hmm. Um, Costume design is pretty even, 50-50, but in every other area, Set design, men, 80%. Men. Lighting, 81% men. Sound, 96% men. Hair, 
62% mm-hmm. men and only 4% working as electricians and there were zero carpenters. Uh-huh. So any female carpenters out there, head to Broadway, you're, uh, <laughs> you're going to get a job. I mean, they can head to Talking Horse as well too. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely. appreciate them. <laughs> yeah, stay here first. Carmen, if you're out there, I know you're listening. We love you. <laughs> we do love Carmen. <laughs> And it doesn't get any better. I looked at the numbers in England, too, for women in theatre statistics, and they are sad reading. Twenty, only 20% of English theatres are led by women. And between them, they only have 13% of the total Arts Council budget. So they just, you, know, you can't do much when the men have got 87%. Um, there has never been a female artistic director at the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company. And during Sir Nicholas Heitner's 12-year stint as artistic director of the National Theatre, he never once directed a play written by a woman. Wow. Mm. That's pretty poor. Yeah. So we were talking about audience breakdown. I mean, is that number 68% around the two thirds? Is that true for Talking Horse too? It is. I would say so. Um, I mean, and it goes past audience. It goes, we're looking at volunteers. I think our board is pretty even. I'd say fairly yes. half and half as far as male and female. But if we're looking at people who are volunteering, if we're looking at the people who are auditioning for the shows, um, the people who are buying tickets, it's a higher percentage of women than it is men. And then if you also added that statistics, if you are a person of color, African Americans oh African Americans are paid an average of 10% less in play roles on Broadway mm-hmm. if they can even get a job in the first place. Right. 65% of principal actors in a play on Broadway are white and that goes up to 66% for musicals and 77% for stage managers. So mm-hmm. are you hopeful that things can change? Absolutely. I mean, that's part of the reason why we wanted to put together a season like this. We, I think it's a point of pride at actually at Talking Horse that we want to be there to service those who are underrepresented in our community. So I believe that this is the start of that. I, we've been doing it a long time anyway, but I feel like Adam and I are really focused on giving that an extra push so that people can start to feel more represented and see themselves in all facets of theater. Do you think it's up to regional theaters to lead the way? Yes. That's <laughs> a <like>, short answer. <laughs> short answer. Um, I actually was doing uh, a little bit of research of my own to prepare for this interview today. And I have you heard of The Count? The Count is an ongoing research study that is done by the Lilies. Um, and if anybody who's not familiar with that, um, their whole mission is to support women's theater and artists who promote gender parity. So Lily Awards and, and all of that, if you're familiar with that. Well, anyway, they have a study that they're getting ready to start their third study because they do it every two years. And the study that they do focuses specifically on nonprofit regional theaters. And their first year, they focused on 153 th- um, theaters, regional theaters, and 2,508 productions. And so their first year, only 22% of those shows were produced by women. And then it gets drastically worse when you start looking at people of color. Um, it was like 3.8% or something like that. And those numbers haven't really shifted at all since, you know, that first one. They did another one in 2017, and it was kind of a, a bit of a boost to like 28.8% women, you know, <laughs> and, yeah, and people of color was like 4.6. But I mean, regional theater plays a very important part. I mean, specifically, just thinking about Midwest, the numbers look terrible for where we live as well, too. So <laughs> we won't even get into that. That's a whole nother show. Um, but yeah, I think it does take a lot. I don't know if we call ourselves a regional theater, maybe. Um, I, I feel like we... A lot of, you know, a lot of actors and playwrights, 
spend time in in regional nonprofit theaters and not just like large Broadway on the coast. So um, I think all of us play a role in trying to change the status quo. Well, we could obviously sit here and be more and more horrified. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's get to your 2020 season Terrific. where Talking Horse is the one leading the gender rebalance. <laughs> so let's go through the four plays and the two musicals and you can give us a synopsis and talk about the roles that are available. So first up in February next year is... Uh, we've got a wonderful play called The Green Book Wine Club Train Trip by Michelle Tyree Johnson. (laughs) I've got it in front of me. That helps. It's a great show. I'm halfway through the title. Uh, But uh, I'm really excited about this one because it focuses on five African-American female friends who board a train in Kansas City. And it's what they're doing is they're doing a book club trip across the state of Missouri, stopping at various Missouri wineries. Mm -hmm. It starts out set in the modern day, but... At one point, the librarian Marie, she steps off the train and she's mysteriously transported to a 1940s segregated Boonville Depot. And while she's there trying to find her way back to how she, back to the train to get back to her time period, she comes across the owner of a colored brothel who takes her in and kind of tells her the secrets about the world and the pre-Jim Crow Missouri. So it's it's a really interesting play about discovering your roots and discovering your history behind what's in the textbooks. Mm-hmm. And this play calls for five African-American female actors. Yes. And I love that this play also has a regional origin. So Michelle mm-hmm. Johnson lives in Kansas City. That's yes. right. And have you been in touch with her about producing her play here in Columbia? We have not been in touch with her. One of our former directors, Diane Bulin, she actually had uh, given us this script early and Mm -hmm. we had taken a look at it and decided it was a great fit for a theater. So we're hoping to get in touch with her soon. We'd love to have her here for the opening. Absolutely. That would be amazing. If people don't know, and I haven't seen the movie Green Book, but Mm -hmm. the Green Book in the title of this play has the Mm -hmm. same reference. Tell us what the Green Book is. The Green Book, for those who are not familiar was a guide that African-American people used during Jim Crow era um, to be able to travel across America. Um, It was it showed locations of safe spaces for them, places that they could eat, locations that they should and should not be in. So it was a very vital part as far as like traveling during that time, during that era. So in this show, it's a key for Marie in order for her to be able to, one, travel in segregated Boonville and find safe places for her to stay. But two, it's also a key for her to get back to present day. That's going to be a very exciting show. And then we go the first musical of the year. You come up next, and that is in April. Yes, it is Fun Home. That's by Lisa Crone. We're really excited about this one. I think this is the first show that Adam and I agreed on. We went and saw it at Stevens, and then it was just, that was an immediate decision for us. Yeah, we're very excited about the possibilities of staging it in our black box set, and we think it speaks so well to the community here. Tell us what it's about. (laughs) I'm like, who wants to go? Um, Okay, so it is based on uh, the story of Alison Bechtel. And it's basically talking about her her college years and relating to her family and how she came to discover her own sexuality and also uncovered her father's own hidden sexualities prior to his death. So I was like, it's it's based kind of around that her her story and living actually in a funeral home. It's very um 
has some darkness. It has some darkness. I was trying to figure out a be- the best way to say that. Well, and of course, your listeners probably know, but Alison Bechtel is famous for, of course, the Bechtel test, which mm-hmm. is a large part of what we've kind of based this season around. Mm-hmm. So we're not just, we don't have female characters that are just there to move the scene along. They're not just uh, side characters to support the male's mission in the show. No, each of these shows features female roles where females are the stars. And they're not talking about men. Isn't that part of the Bechdel test? That's right. right. You have a female character in a leading role with a name Mm -hmm. who has a conversation that is not about a man. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Right. And it started life as a graphic novel in 2006 and then uh, came out as a play, I think, in the mid-2000s. And it was nominated for 12 Tony Awards and it won five, including Best Musical, which was the first time that an all-female writing team won a Tony Award for a musical score. 2015. Welcome to the 21st century, people. (laughs) Seems like a great fit, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> now, I also saw it at Stevens College last year with Trent Rash playing Alison's yes. father. Mm-hmm. So when you have a whole cast and orchestra that have recently worked in the same community on the same production, do do you try and get them involved in the in the new show or do you feel like oh, it should be all new people? You know, Trent is a good friend of the theater. Of course, mm-hmm. he's one of our stable boys. And I know we had talked to him a little bit about putting this on. We absolutely would welcome the feedback. I know he expressed interest in potentially playing the role again mm-hmm. we just kind of have to see where the cards lie because we might get a director that comes in that has a completely new vision for the show that we would not have thought of before right, right. and so we don't like to come up with the vision for, before we have the director we like to have that input first third play of the year or yes. the second play rather you have seminar yes by mm-hmm. Teresa Rebeck. Tell us about that. Oh, I am very, very excited about this one. This is one of my favorite modern comedies. It's it's kind of a dark comedy. I am a big fan of Jeff Goldblum, and he originated the role of Leonard when the show first premiered. But to give you an idea, basically four writers, two men and two women, have paid handsomely for writing lessons from this very eccentric, very extravagant professional writer named Leonard. And they take these classes, and of course, they're nothing like what they think. He breaks them down. He pits them against each other. It's very biting, very witty, terrific characters throughout. And I'm really, really excited to see who we find for Leonard, because it's going to be an off-the-wall character. Well, now, on Broadway, it was played by Alan Rickman, who, as the New York Times describe him, is the virtuoso of disdain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So I wondered if you were going to keep this role as a male. Or switch it to a female role. Again, it really depends on the director. We've had a few submissions for it. I'm already very excited by who has submitted. They've got some great ideas for the show. So I don't want to give anything away because we haven't decided yet. But... uh, (laughs) It's going to be very exciting. And what is the etiquette for changing the gender in a play? If the playwright is still alive, do you have to have their permission? Yes, you do. So it might not be as easy as just making a decision locally, like, let's make it a female role. That's right. Uh, some, Some writers are all for it. They appreciate the mission. If you send them a letter or you send their agency a letter, they usually respond back with a yeah do whatever you want just pay me (laughs) um depends some shows especially musicals really don't like it okay so we don't know whether Teresa Rebeck might be up for that and we don't know whether the director would indeed make that decision so uh seminar coming up in the summer next year in June and then you have a very interesting play called e-baby by Jane Caparella coming up in August Rashara what's e-baby about 
I almost feel like Adam is actually the expert on this one. Um, eBaby will be a world premiere, so we're, we're really excited about that. An American premiere. A North American premiere, yeah. not world. My fault. <laughs> Tell the story of Catherine, who is a lawyer, and you know she has a f- fulfilling career, um, but she is she wants to have a child. So she meets uh, Nellie, who is a mother of two who's living in Massachusetts and wants her to be her surrogate so she can have this child. And so it kind of goes, again, Adam is the expert on this one. But Yeah, so this is a play that we found because we were looking on a site called New Play Exchange. Mm-hmm. And specifically, that is a resource that we use for plays that are underproduced or not produced at all. And so as Shar was saying about the story for this one, I thought it was especially culturally relevant with what's going on with the heartbeat bill and what's going on with the the passing of laws in New York. And so there's a lot of controversy behind a surrogate mother. So Catherine asks this woman to be a surrogate for her. And during that pregnancy, they, they fill her with the eggs and she ends up with triplets. But a couple weeks into the pregnancy, one dies. And then one is born with a genetic deformity. Or they start to develop a genetic deformity in the womb. And while it's, and so to give the surviving child without a deformity the best chance of survival, the doctors recommend that they actually have to kill the child with the deformity. And so the surrogate mother is wrestling with her religious beliefs and her loyalty to do the deed. And of course, Catherine wants this child so badly that she's willing to do whatever it takes. And so both of them are at odds with their personal beliefs, with their beliefs on human life and what it means to have a child. Now, this one is partly a little a little bit like you had Daddy Longlegs, where a lot of the story was told in correspondence. A lot of this mm-hmm. story is they're on Skype or they're messaging each other. That's Sometimes right. they meet up. Does that present some challenging for staging? Because they're not really ever together in the same room. It very well could. I, I am excited about this one because we've done some things with projection in the past, uh, most recently with Louis Louis and La Dolce Vita. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've got an excellent projectionist in Dan Harrison, and I think he's going to come up with some great ideas to kind of show these Skype conversations. Gosh, we're already running out of time. So let's whistle through the last two. In October, you have Murder Ballad mm-hmm. by Julia oh. Jordan and Juliana Nash, <laughs> originally performed in a bar. That's right. Mm-hmm. Might this be a show where you perform in Dogmaster? <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm about to give away secrets. Yeah, don't give away <laughs> secrets. Don't give away. Um, um, I plead the fifth. You can tell us. <laughs> it's just me. We certainly would like them to be involved. How about that? Yes. <laughs> okay, there you go. And that is a... No, that's, that's a musical. That's your second musical of yes. the year. Yes. Okay. And then you close the year with the Thanksgiving play by Larissa Fasthorse. Give us a quick uh-huh. rundown on that one. This is a comedy. <laughs> So what's the go on this? <laughs> making Sean yeah. laugh just thinking about it. So in an interview with Larissa Fast Horse, she was writing, she of course is Native American, and she was writing these great shows that featured Native American actors. And she said they would never get produced because nobody could find a Native American actor. Mm-hmm. So instead she wrote a play featuring white people talking about Native American experience. And that is where the Thanksgiving play has come from. So it's it's four 
people that are trying to produce this uh, child-friendly, true Thanksgiving play that tells the Native American perspective. And they think they find a Native American actor. <laughs> they sure, they sure do. do. And then it's not quite Ooh, as not it seems. So it's not quite as it seems. But the picture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have never laughed so hard at a script. It, it's not a terribly long one. It's about a one act. There's a couple different scenes. But it's, uh, it's one that just about every page that I turned, I was laughing hysterically at because it it, mm-hmm. it goes after a lot of the current culture and what we call woke culture and, and what's politically correct to say and mm-hmm. how can you speak for people that are not there to speak for themselves and are we allowed to speak for people that don't speak for themselves? It's uh, it's very funny. Now, it's a brand new comedy, only premiered off-Broadway in November of last year. Is it usual for works to get licensed that quickly in to be available? So it depends. We were actually very concerned about this one because it was restricted up until last month. Um, it was most, it's going to be performed, I believe, at the St. Louis Rep in February of next year. So I feel like uh, it's a good time for us because not too, too many people journey up that far. But it's a great grab. So is this commitment to a gender balanced season going to be part of Talking Horse's mission going forward? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it necessarily was ever not a part of our mission. Um, like I said before, we've always kind of prided ourselves of wanting to be uh, an organization that supports and uh, serves what we see as the underrepresented communities. So I could see it as looking at not just gender, but race, looking at the LGBTQ community, um, making sure that we are anybody of quote unquote disabilities and, you know, making sure that we are representing everyone. Um, So I think Adam and I will moving forward, we'll we'll make sure that whenever we are picking shows that we are making sure that everybody is represented. And Native American actors listening to the show in Columbia, please reach out and let us know that you're there. Yeah, please. (laughs) Thank you so much to Rashara Knight and Adam Bretsky, the executive director and artistic director, respectively, for Talking Horse Productions. The 2020 season is not yet available on their website, but you can find the listing on their Facebook page. The next production at the theatre is Boy, which opens on June the 7th, and I already have you on the schedule to come back and talk about that play. Wonderful. Adam and Rashara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Mark Vital II, the Assistant Professor of Costume Design at the University of Missouri. Stay close to your wirelesses. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My next guest began his career in northeast Alabama. Enthralled with live theatre, he joined his high school drama program, quickly becoming its first resident costume designer. Today, he is the assistant professor of costume design at the University of Missouri and recently created the fabulous costumes for the department's production of Alice. His passion for producing works exploring LGBTQ and race issues through visceral and evocative storytelling is what guides him also. Welcome to the show, Mark Vital. Thank you for having me. Now, it is perfect timing that you are here this week, as it means we can start off by talking about last Monday's High Camp Met Gala in New York, an annual fundraiser to raise money for the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute. Tickets cost $30,000, and it is regarded as one of the most exclusive social events in the world. Of course, it is packed full of celebrities whose arrival outfits must have every costume designer drooling. And I say arrival outfits, as apparently most people get changed once they get inside, because you really can't wear 
what they're wearing to sit and have dinner in. So, Mark, with such a high drama selection of outfits on display this year and the theme of the evening being Susan Sontag's 1964 essay entitled Notes on Camp, who achieved true camp design? I kind of want to say Cardi B. I loved Cardi B. And I, I know Gaga came out. She was extra with like, let me hold the runway for 15 minutes and just do costume changes. But I don't know if any of her single looks really was like camp to me. I agree. But Cardi B came out. It was red. It was stunning. It's something you're going to remember. It was designed by, I think, designer Tom Brown. And it was this kind of almost a quilted affair with this giant train. And then she had $250,000 ruby nipples, apparently. That that was what set the costume off. I only have dealt with Walmart, like... (laughs) plastic jewels so like the fact that someone went out and bought real stuff just for like a one-time show exactly i bet they were borrowed i bet they weren't actually purchased I'm oh sure. probably <laughs> and i love janelle monet's and she had a, a picasso style outfit on which had a a winking eye over one breast and then she had hats upon hats upon hats there was like a multiple pile up of hats didn't look like they were going to balance together so they must have been well adhered together but that was a great outfit and then there was Katy Perry in a chandelier Chandelier. a lit chandelier dress which we'll come back to a bit later but it it was was amazing so do you Mm -hmm. look at that and think I'd like to be doing that I do and I'm kind of like okay well I'm here teaching and I want to keep doing that I love sharing with students getting them ready to go out into the workforce and like giving them that confidence because sadly a lot of students are coming in already beaten down and I'm like you're 18 years old what happened but yeah I would love to have like a little bit bigger budget you know and like really go at it with like I don't know real squirtsy crystals now, I saw your work in Alice, and that one seemed like you had a lot wider reign. You weren't just having to go to Target and buy jeans and a T-shirt. I mean, you got Correct. to design these fabulous Alice in Wonderland outfits. So how often do you get to do that, just to have much freer reign to design? It's not very often. A lot of times we are, especially at Mizzou Theater, we are trying to do work that is relevant to the community and relevant to our nation today. So we can be like that mirror for uh, our audience to look at themselves, look at social issues, and think about how can we solve these problems. Alice was a really awesome godsend. My butter and jam is like, yep, butter, bread, jam, all that good stuff. Um, (laughs) Is uh, doing fantasy and high concept type work. So it was super exciting to get to just have this free reign. A lot of our shows tend to be more modern, like we did 28 Hours this spring. And all of those clothes were pulled from the actors' wardrobes because it was a modern piece. And we were just trying to really get the idea of, you know, the every man um, participating. So yeah, not very often. Right. It, it doesn't seem like there, there would be that many opportunities. So you started your career by falling in love with theatre at high school, mm-hmm. but then you found your voice in costume design. Tell me about your costume design awakening and your early inspirations. So um, when we were in, high, or when I was in high school, it was more like a club of sorts. We had our professor and she guided us through things. But a lot of it was, hey guys, we're doing this show, um, draw, write, like come up with ideas, brainstorm. It was this giant collision of creation. Um, and she found out that I could draw really, really well. Um, and that my mother also could sew. 
So that dream made, team. Yeah, dream team, <laughs> dream team, right? And we ended up doing like bigger and bigger shows because like I was so invested in like making them look really good. Um, I kind of think of my time there as being a golden age because there was these other students in my age group who were also on fire about theater and they took over the other disciplines of like scenic and lighting and stuff. And we took what kind of looked more like traditional high school theater where it's kind of pulled and found and sad and like made it into like full on stuff. I remember like my senior year we did the hobbit which you know has like a dragon in it and like a bunch of dwarves and all this stuff and we did it and we had a dragon on stage that was life-size and had smoking nostrils and glowing eyes and it was awesome what else did you work on while you were at school we also did the jungle book i remember that one it had an interesting twist where you're watching Rudyard Kipling go through school and then also kind of a parallel with Mowgli and his struggles. Uh, My concept for that one was inspired by Hindi deities. Um, For me, I had, when we did Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I had put the animal characters in like animal onesies and like teenagers are starting to look like adults. So like a onesie isn't very cute. But if you can make it more creative, maybe take clothes and add elements and stuff. So that's why when I got to Jungle Book, I was like, okay, well, let's be inspired by these Hindi deities. They look amazing. Some of them are actually like part animal. Um, And we're adding pieces. Um, Let's see, Ka, uh, the snake, she ended up having this slim green silhouette with a long uh, train that was actually stuffed, so it created this idea of a three-dimensional tail that dragged behind her, and she had this gorgeous veil. Um, She ended up being more of a cobra and less of a python, but with the veil, she was able to, like, spread her arms and kind of sway side to side, and it was very hypnotic. Now, you're starting all these costumes from scratch. Are you building everything from the first stitch up, or are you kind of getting existing clothing and adding on to them, or is everything... Every piece of fabric. When I was younger and because my mother loved me, a lot of it was from scratch. Um, And I give her kudos because she did a lot of that work in two weeks. And we're talking like 40 students to dress. Um, sometimes with costume changes. But when I got into college and started really learning what costume design can be, I have gone to pulling things, seeing what do we have to work with. Because if you have like that perfect red dress for the lead, why build it? Right. Um, which actually, that happened uh, this past fall when we did Fever Dream. There was just this gorgeous red dress with a circle skirt for our lead girl, and she just spun out on stage, and I was like, that's it. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it, we, we tend to do a, a, a blend of pulling, building things that we don't have or just really want to build, you know. Was there a point at which you were vacillating between fashion design and theatrical costuming or has theater always been your love? Theater has always been my love because if I were to be a fashion designer, my clientele would be very, very niche. Um, Alexander McQueen is one of the the designers that I do like in fashion and uh, I remember he did this one line where it's lots of reds and golds and whites and it feels a little vampiric in a way and that would be what I would want to wear on a day-to-day basis in the real world and most people wouldn't want to do that because it's (laughs) it's cumbersome and (laughs) maybe a little too much just for breakfast. There's always a party to go to though you know 
Right. Somebody was saying this week they were out having lunch and they were admiring the women who lunch wearing sequins. And I thought that would be me. I'd be out having lunch in sequins. So you went to the University of Alabama and you got your bachelor's degree in theatre with a concentration in costume design. And then you got your MFA from University of Missouri, Kansas City in costume design and technology. Were you ever lured by the thought of Broadway and Hollywood or did you want to stay in education? I was lured by that. But what I learned, because grad school is really great if you want to really get to know yourself and really see who you are because it's like a pressure cooker. Um, But while I was in there, I realized that I am not a person who would be satisfied in the rat race of New York. Because mm-hmm. when, when you're a freelance, you have to work two or three costume design jobs at one time to make rent. And with what some of us get paid, it's not necessarily going to be enough to live in New York. Um, I also am a very creative person, so I'm wanting to just do other things. Like I want to maybe get into some drag, learn makeup, hair, more so than what I know currently. Um, I like Dungeons and Dragons. I I might want to write a novel one day. And I also got into doll repainting. I don't know if you know about that. It's when you basically just kind of take a, a Barbie doll or whatever, and you might repaint the face into like a like a realistic portrait of a person Hmm. um, and then like build their clothes from the ground up. So a lot of hobbies, a lot of things I like doing. And if I was strictly just working as a costume designer in New York, I wouldn't have time for any of it. Talking about that and about fees, obviously you're a member of faculty at Mizzou and so you get paid a standard salary. But Mm -hmm. if you're working on Broadway, I mean, you might be producing a play where you can go to Target or, or designing for a play where you've got to produce 7,000 costumes. Mm-hmm. So how do the fees work? How do you get paid? Do you get paid by costume? or? I think it probably depends company to company because each one's a little bit different. Um, like I've worked with the Tibbetts Opera House, which is funded by the government. or um, I forget all their specifics. But they have to do things a certain way, whereas like Broadway maybe is like free reign and can do whatever they want. Can you repeat the question? How, how do the fees work in professional theater for costume designs? Because it, it might be that you're producing very standard costumes or that you're producing period pieces for opera that have to be, okay. or for somebody that has to be able to do the splits. I mean, so. <laughs> I think if you're doing something that's more like contemporary where you can just go shopping for it, um, they might pay you a little bit less. And then uh, in that case, you're more of a shopper and coordinator of the outfits. Whereas if you are trying to do that period piece, um, they'll probably pay you a standard stipend, give you a budget just for your costumes. Um, And if you are doing those bigger period shows, Shakespeare and that lot, um, usually they'll have a stock of just costumes that are already made that you can kind of tweak and work with, or else they'll need to have a shop of, like a team of people to actually come and help you. Because... one man, 40 costumes, and it's all like big, big old dresses, not going to happen. And then you might have multiple costume changes. And then what yep. if the main character suddenly gets sick and the next, the understudy is a different size? Then you've kind of got to redesign everything or remake everything. If you're on Broadway, each understudy has their own set of costumes to make sure it fits. And that also means like, should an incident happen, boom, we're already good to go. In most other theater experiences, uh, safety pins. And um, if safety pins won't work, say like the understudy is larger than the actual lead, you might actually just have something pulled from in stock. 
Now, the multi-award winning costume designer, William Ivy Long, said in a New York Times article that until the director shows me what we're doing, I don't need to start thinking, which is one of the hardest things because how can you not start seeing the production as you're reading it? At the second meeting, I bring ideas, start my thumbnails and collage it. So how do you work? I, when I'm reading, the characters walk up onto the stage and I see them and that tends to be my first reaction and kind of what I go with. Um, I'll do more in-depth research, um, also in conjunction with meetings with the director to figure out what their final look will actually end up being. A lot of times I've gotten lucky where that first instinct of who this person, what this person looks like um, has been quite right and actually does end up what's on stage. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had this vision, the director's like, oh no, totally different? Um, not quite. And, and usually what I do is jump on board pretty quick. That's why I love having my personal projects because that can be anything I want and it's just me. But when you are working with the director, I kind of think of myself as like the nursemaid to their child. So it, this is the director's vision, their baby. Let, how can I serve? How can I be helpful? Now your costumes need to be cognizant, not only of kind of history and sociology and philosophy and psychology, but as another costume designer, Catherine Zuber says, it's not about being historically accurate in every detail, but it's visually making sure the audience gets the right information about a character. Plus you've got the size of the theater, where the audience is sitting, their vantage point, hem lengths, pattern week construction, mm -hmm. small detail, what's gonna be seen, what isn't gonna be seen. Yep. How long does it take to create a production wardrobe? For say a standard Mizzou play, how long are you given? Okay. So depending on the size of the show, like Alice, um, we started planning in the fall and then had about two months of building. There are other situations where you'll have two weeks. So the, the turnaround kind of depends on the production and depends on who you're working for, um, how much time you'll actually have. Right. So, but sometimes you've got to work pretty fast. If you've got a big production and you've got 40 yep. or 50 characters, that's... Yeah, it's a lot of midnight oil. I know on Alice, I did a couple of um, late nights till 4 a.m. And this past summer where I was working, there was like two weeks of staying up till 4 a.m. because it's a smaller theater, so there's not a lot of money, not a lot of manpower. But I loved working there and I loved the people there. So I was willing to burn that midnight oil. Now, Mizzou, is it just you or have you got a team of people that help? create the costumes. We have a team here at Mizzou. Um, and those of you thinking about coming to Mizzou, you can be on that team. Um, it features uh, Cutter Draper right now, who's Abby Romine. She is awesome. She is a graduate student in the TAM program, which is the textile apparel management. And then we also have a lot of student workers who will come in. I like to call them technicians because you're more than just a worker. You are being taught specific skills that are marketable. And they, like with Alice in Wonderland, they were each given a costume and built it from start to finish. So like the Cheshire Cat and that puppet was built by a student who was from TAM, who has no costume training, but had some sewing and some creativity. Right. I think the turtle, Mock Turtle, was also one of those. I love the Red Queen. Oh, my God, the Red Queen. Um, <laughs> that I built a lot of, and her, her entire outfit ties together. There are no zippers, snaps, or buttons. 
And I did that for speed reasons because you can run some ribbon and fabric through a machine, whereas like buttons and everything else got to be hand sewn. But yeah, I loved that one. And her understructure is actually cardboard. Fun fact. Yes, really. Don't sweat too much. She had, well, he was a drag queen. Um, (laughs) Underneath there were peignets, um, which are like baskets on your hips that mm. help to hold the cardboard out away from the body and then he also wore bloomers underneath to okay. keep all sweat at bay because it was naked and afraid cardboard <laughs> and then we threw the red skirt that was custom made to fit over that structure on top and then it all tied together with ribbons i wish it was still on because i feel like people who missed it you know could go and see but there's great photographs on facebook online that you can yes. see um, that were taken at the show so when you say when you're designing for on stage you're also so thinking about the functionality of what the performer has to do in that outfit. Yes. Like if they have to do the splits, you can't have them in like a tweed suit or something. No. So <laughs> with so many factors at play, where do you start with a design? Thinking about the functionality or the historical aspect of it? What's your starting point? My starting point is what are the needs of the script? Um, it's kind of like... I I like thinking of it like raising a child. So what does this child need? I'll read it. Uh, When does somebody enter? Do they have a costume change? And then what do they need to do in each of these costumes? Then from there, I'll start looking at period, seeing what elements in there can I use to fit the needs of the show. And then from there, tweaking things so that everything flows smoothly because you do not want to have problems when you're running a show. You said you can't put them in a tweed suit to do splits. You can. (laughs) You just have to do some alterations to that suit to make it work. That's to be a very elastic gusset. Yes. That's exactly what it is, actually. (laughs) So now going back to the Katy Perry chandelier outfit, you may or may not know that the original chandelier dress was designed by a glass artist here in Columbia called Susan Taylor Glasgow. And we had one on display at the Columbia Art League many years ago. She designed it like 10 years ago. So clearly, she designed it as a sculptural art piece, not as a fashion piece. But it was shown in New York. So I'm guessing that Moschino or somebody who works for Moschino who designed the Katy Perry dress had been to the gallery in New York, seen this fabulous chandelier dress and basically copied it. Yeah. It's a Susan Taylor Glasgow a design from here in Columbia. So what is the etiquette of that? If you were designing a costume and it's very specific, at what point is this a Marc Vital costume and, and you should be given recognition for it? Or can you just steal from everybody? You can steal, steal, <laughs> steal. Um, the way art works is we're inspired by each other as artists. And I think as long as you're not like, I'm going to take this book and put my name on it and publish it. Like that would be like actual stealing. But I guess borrow is a better word. And so this person saw this chandelier and was like, oh, that would be an interesting dress. So now they've taken this chandelier, figured out how to put it on a human body that's wearable, walkable. So now those are actually two different things. One is a sculpture. One is a dress. But Susan's was also wearable. I mean, she had oh, it, it was? She had it modeled at, at, at art, fashion art shows. Oh. So, I mean, it was a totally wearable dress with a glass corset and then the chandelier base and then it was modeled at Sega Browder's gallery like eight years ago so it's it's totally a steal totally (laughs) and she gets no recognition so Moschino is now a genius but clearly it was Susan Taylor Glasgow that originally thought of it but uh, I feel like she should get some recognition for that and I, I wondered how it worked generally in the in the fashion world 
I'm not sure because you'd have to talk to both and see where they got their inspiration from. Because if it was that like Katy Perry came in and was like, I want to be a chandelier because this, this and that reason camp, then it might have a different origin. And then that's where they arrived at. But if it wasn't, nah, I saw this dress. I want this for my dress. And I think what makes it different maybe is who made it and then also what things are you using and like what are those little details because each of those things I think changes the outfit and makes it more your own Um, I personally try to stay away from direct copying unless that is a need of the show like with ragtime which we're doing um, this summer we have uh, a lot of historical figures and so I'm looking to copy those photographs those paintings um, that you can see so I designed it, yes. I made the choice that this is what they're wearing, so that's design, even though I might not have actually created what that dress looks like. Does that make sense? Right. Now, do you think that good costume design should be seen but not be one of the principal players? Should it just kind of melt away? Or is costume design kind of one of the characters in the play? It depends on the play. Alice in Wonderland uh, was originally conceived as something else, and then this is what it became. And so costumes kind of was put up to the forefront and was like, okay, you got to make these costumes like bigger and better now. Um, so that's what happened. But for the most part, I think costumes need to be almost a background element that support, not disappear, support the show and the narrative. Because you see things, um, whether you're aware of them or not, but if that things say like this dangle earring because they're doing a close-up and it's a movie um if that dangle earring isn't there then she feels maybe like a little naked or like you don't know what the setting is now flash forward it's 2025 you are working on broadway and um and you're up for a tony award for costume design what is the musical or play that you have designed for and what do the costumes look like what's your dream production that you're going to win a tony for The thing is, I don't know if I could give you a dream production just because I would want it to be an original piece. Like, I would want it to be something new and exciting, probably in the fantasy genre. Um, (laughs) And just spectacular. Something that basically was a costume show where half the reason people are screaming is because of my costumes. And then I can show up in, like, a riff of one of my designs to the Tony Awards. I would love to have, like, a suit with a train on it that, you know, is bigger than everybody else's outfit. I mean, when you look at things like the Met Gala, the women mm-hmm. seem to steal the show. There weren't that many great, there was a couple of great male outfits, but uh, it, it seems like, you know, women generally get the best outfits. And apart from in drag, then the drag world has the best outfits of all time. I mean, they're the queens of Love, love. <laughs> Love drag outfits. What about things like Game of Thrones? Were you kind of drooling when you saw that and wishing that you'd been on that team? When you look at the behind the scenes on those costumes, like I am dying. There there are so many details and things that they built from scratch just to be an unnoticed thing on a dress. Like there's these bug like brooches or whatever that are like hand. I don't know if it's crocheted or what they're doing, but they're using like real like metallic threads and just making these little brooches to go on a dress. And half the time, no one's going to know that they're there, but you'll feel the sumptuousness by it being there. 
It's like when you look at Halloween costumes online, how a lot of those seem cheap or plain. But when you look at, you know, Broadway level or like Game of Thrones level um, costumes, those start to feel like clothing. And that's because all the details are put in there. And that's because um, there's understructure and there's thought and the fibers were like picked for function and not just because it was cheap. Now, you mentioned that you're working on Ragtime, the musical that's coming up at Mizzou later this summer I think it's in July and yes. before that there's also Corduroy mm-hmm. is a children's play that's coming up are you also doing the costuming for that no Abby Romine who I mentioned earlier she will be doing that show I think that's her second design with Mizzou and I'm excited it's going to be really cute really really funny so if you like to laugh come bring your kids it will be a fun evening and you're not going anywhere so you're here for the following year at mizzou so we can expect to see more mark vidal costumes in 2020 i'm I'm intending to stay for quite some time (laughs) well i'm very glad about that um thank you so much to university of missouri assistant professor of costume design mark vital for sharing some thoughts on theatrical costuming it was really a delight to chat to you Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I hope you'll come back again. I will. I'll be watching out for your costumes. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events that are coming up over the next few days that would like to find their way into your diaries. Tonight and tomorrow are your last chances to see Stevens College Playhouse's phenomenal production of the musical comedy Pippin with great costumes. The hilarious tale of a young prince searching for meaning and adventure in his life. Tickets are $18 and the show starts at 7.30 and I really urge you, Columbia, not to miss this one. I've already seen it twice. It was so awesome. Also playing this weekend is Greenhouse Theatre Project's new play Being Here, written and devised by Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri and being performed at The Industry, which is behind the Tiger Hotel. Tickets are $16 and the production runs tonight, tomorrow and Sunday night at 8pm. Tonight's show I know is sold out, but uh, I believe there are tickets still available for Saturday and Sunday. And you can try for tickets on the door, but it is usually recommended to get them in advance. Movies in the Park returns for its summer season at Cosmo Park, courtesy of Parks and Recreation. Tonight's film is The Greatest Showman and that starts at 8.30. Take a blanket or lawn chair and watch a movie under the stars. And tonight at the Blue Note you can hear Florida's Sister Hazel in concert with Missouri's own The Mighty Pines. Their show starts at 8.30 and general admission tickets are $15. Tomorrow morning at the Daniel Boone Regional Library, author Dr. Jeff Miller is giving a free workshop to aspiring writers entitled I Have Something to say. The workshop is from 10 till 12 and will cover things like how to prepare for submissions, how to contact editors and more and you can call the library to register for that. The Missoula Children's Theatre will be at Jesse Hall for two performances of The Frog Prince at 3 and 6pm tomorrow as part of the University Concert Series and tickets for that show are 15 for adults and 10 for children. At Rose Park tomorrow night you can hear Opal Agafia and the Sweet Nothings along with Columbia's own Bernie Sisters. Their show starts at 7 and tickets are 5 and Saturday night the Stable Boys Improv Troupe are back at Talking Horse Theatre for an evening of Twisted Disney. Show starts at 7.30 and tickets are just $10. On Sunday night the Como Comedy club returns to the blue note with pete lee allegedly the first stand-up comedian to get a standing ovation on the tonight show starring jimmy fallon he has two shows at 6 and 8 30 and tickets are 20 dollars. next tuesday movies in the park returns to rose park kicking off the summer season with back to the future that starts at 8 30 and it's free entry next wednesday the first family fun fest of the summer is back at cosmo park from 6 till 8 p.m for a kindness carnival look out for music food trucks live performances art activities hands-on learning, face painting and balloon art.
And next Thursday, May the 16th, Missouri Contemporary Ballet holds its annual Dancing with the Missouri Stars at the Holiday Inn Expo Center. And that's from 7 till 10 p.m. Tickets are 20 for adults or 15 for students. And you can get those at MissouriContemporaryBallet.org. At Rose Music Hall, Honky Tonk and Country Music Maverick Dale Watson is on stage, presented by KOPN's own Real Deal Country Show and Roadhouse 56. Dale's show starts at 7.30 and tickets are $20. And finally, the Blue Notes regular Brew and View series continues with an absolute cult classic next Thursday, Monty Python's The Holy Grail, complete with free inflatable swords and a costume contest with prizes. Event starts at 8 p.m. and tickets are $10 on the door. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.